You are listening to a podcast from Essendon Presbyterian Church in Melbourne, recorded 10 a.m. on November 19, 2023, presented by Rev. Chris Duke. We're now going to come to our message and our reading. And uh, we have just two verses this morning, so that should make it a fraction easier. So reading from Romans 12, we're going to read the first two verses. Let's give attention to God's word. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. May the Lord bless to us those verses this morning. Let us pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, as we consider these two very important verses, we ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would teach us afresh what these mean. Speak to our hearts, we pray. Not only just our minds, but into our inner being. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In our English language, we have words that are nouns, adverbs, verbs, adjectives and prepositions. And, of course, in addition to words, we have symbols. We have the plus sign and the minus sign. Now, I'm not sure if you're aware of another symbol. In fact, uh, I haven't used it for a very long time. Maybe you've, you use it. I haven't used it since my university days. There is a symbol that has three dots in the shape of a triangle. And this triangular symbol means, therefore. It usually signifies the conclusion to an argument. And so in Romans 12, verses 1 to 2, we have, or in verse 1, we have a therefore. I beseech you, therefore, brethren. In the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul has laid out his argument of teaching. Paul has taught us about justification. He's taught us about sanctification, the doctrines of grace, the sovereignty of God and perseverance of the saints and the sweetness of God's providential care. And so now in chapter 12, Paul is making a transition, a transition from doctrine to application. Paul wants his readers to now consider applications and therefore implications of his teaching. Therefore, Paul reveals now the means of how to be successful to live out the Christian life. Friends, this is how we're to live the Christian life in our fallen world. And Paul presents us now with a practical Christian biblical theology. Friends, Christian living is a theological matter. And we need to understand the truth of God's grace as we live our everyday lives. And Paul is calling us to live for God, to love God, to obey God, 
to delight in God's word, to delight in God's will, to delight in God's law even, to live it out because of the mercy of God toward us. And so from Romans chapter 12 to chapter 16, Paul aims to show us what grace produces in the Christian life. Now, of course, this news is not new news. <laughs> and so Paul pleads in 1, verse 1, he pleads with us, he begs us, he begs the brethren by the mercies of God. Now, God's mercies have all already been expounded in the, in the first 11 chapters of Romans. We're first learnt. We're first, firstly, we are justified by faith. Secondly, our sins are forgiven by the atonement of Christ. And thirdly, God works all things for good. And fourthly, God calls people to himself. Now, all these four categories of doctrine all point, they all point to the mercy of God, which leads us now to this, therefore. So what's next? What's next? The first application for believers in Christ is to bring to God a thank offering, a thank offering that you present your bodies a living sacrifice wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Now Paul is using by way of example, of course, the Old Testament sacrificial system. Sacrifices is nothing new in the Bible. The idea of sacrifice, of course, begins right back in Genesis chapter 3, immediately after the fall, when God clothes Adam and Eve with animal skins. Those animals forfeited their lives in order for God to cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve, to cover their shame after they fell into sin. And then when we read Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel also bring sacrifices. They bring sacrifices of produce and livestock. Now these sacrifices were the way in which our first parents worshipped God. And then later with the institution of tabernacle worship and then the permanent structure of the temple, offerings were brought into the sanctuary and sacrificed. Offerings such as bulls and goats and lambs and even little turtle doves were brought in and sacrificed. Often when we think of sacrifice, it's something of value that we have to give up. It's something that we lose. Now is, there is some truth in this. But the real reason is not that we should lose something, but rather that we should give to God. That we should give to God as our expression of worship to him. Now, you will hear me soon. I often use these words after the sermon, after the prayer. Let us continue in worship, in praise, in singing, and also in the giving of our tithes and offerings. When we worship God with the giving of our tithes and offerings, we're not being asked to give something back to God out of duty. We're asked to make an offering as an act of worship. In such giving, we show our submission to our majestic God. He alone is worthy of our devotion. He alone is worthy of our substance he, and time. And, of course, everything that we have. 
in the old uh, in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, the sacrifices had to be cooled before they could be offered. The lamb, the bull, the goat, they were slain and its blood then was poured out on the altar. And so in contrast to the Old Testament sacrifices and in contrast to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. Not our animals, not our food even, not any cereal, which you'll often see if you go to a Hindu temple. But our bodies, we are to offer our whole bodies, our body and soul. And Christ, of course, gave his whole self to us. And we are to respond by giving our whole self our whole being. Christ gave himself to redeem us and we give ourselves to thank and to serve him. When we give ourselves to God as a living sacrifice, we do so at that moment, of course, when we first come to Christ. Our sacrifice is not something that's offered only on the Day of Atonement or every Sunday uh, in morning worship services. You see, it's an offering that's made of our whole self for the rest of our lives. And the Apostle Paul is calling for us to give everything for Jesus Christ. To put ourselves on the altar and to give up everything for him. You know, salvation is a free gift that costs you everything. John Calvin understood that. He understood that in the very intense, he understood this in a very intense and personal way. He once wrote, we are not our own, therefore let not our reason nor our will sway our plans and deeds. We are not our own, let us therefore not set it as our goal to seek what is expedient for us according to the flesh. We are not our own. In so far as we can, let us therefore forget ourselves and all that is ours. Conversely, we belong to God. Let us therefore, let us live for him and die for him. We belong to God. Our spiritual walk and our spiritual lives are often weak and we hold back. We keep for ourselves a part of ourselves. You see, the gospel tells us that if we are to take up his cross, we first of all should count the cost. When you're serving Jesus Christ, you are required to give away your life. And of course, the world looks at this idea and, and this concept and it scoffs. On Tuesday night, we're going to welcome here back here missionaries. And they have given up much. Our own in-house missionaries, Len and Wendy, they have given up much in their service in times past, 50 years ago. And the same goes for their children, David and Lisa and Paul and Anthea. Yet those of us who are here, the Lord is now asking and he's always asked us to give up much. Our lives are to be given over, body and soul, to the service of our Lord. To be a Christian is to present ourselves 
as living sacrifices. You see, our sacrifice is to be a living one and we're to present ourselves and it is to be holy. The sacrifices in the Old Testament sacrificial system were to be the first fruits of the flock. The animals were to be without blemish. However, Christ has already taken our sin. Therefore, we are to give ourselves. God wants our living sacrifice to be sanctified. We are to give the most sanctified portion of our lives as an act of praise to God. But Paul, this is so very, very hard, isn't it? Remember, Paul starts off by begging us, I beseech you, brethren. In the Old Testament, not all the offerings received delighted the Lord God. Offerings were brought to God during times of hypocrisy and false worship. Through the prophet Amos, God spoke in chapter 5, 21, I hate, I despise your feast days and I do not savour your sacred assemblies. You see, there have been offerings made in the wrong way. You see, we often overlook what God requires of us, what type of sacrifice God requires. And we come to think that any act of religion or any spiritual sacrifice, that God will be delighted in it. Our God wants us to offer ourselves in a way that is acceptable to him. We're to offer ourselves in humility and in repentance so that the sacrifice of our praise will be a sweet aroma to him. And Paul then states that our grounds for a living sacrifice is our reasonable service. And the words for reasonable service can also be translated reasonable worship or logical worship. What could be more logical or reasonable than offering our whole selves to God in thanksgiving, in praise and in worship and in adoration? If we truly understand the gospel, then of course indifference and apathy are irrational responses of worship. This is your spiritual service of worship. Christian living, Christian service, and Christian worship is not a one or two or three hour a week activity. It's a 24-7 day a week activity. It's a whole of life activity. In other words, the kind of worship that God wants from us is whole of life worship. It's all of life worship. Worship isn't an act, an activity that is confined to Sunday morning or evening services. Now I'm not downplaying the importance of corporate worship. Our corporate worship is extremely important. It's just that God wants his worship in all our lives, in the priorities we choose. He wants us to be worshipping him. He wants us to be worshipping him in the restraint of our own sinful habits. He wants us to be worshipping him. The worship we offer to God is not mindless. How many Christians just don't want to think today? Few want to truly understand the content of God's word. Many are content to rely on feelings 
Yes, we are to have a childlike faith. Faith. We are to be childlike in our morality and in our trust and not to be hardened professionals in regard to sin. However, we're called to be adults in our understanding of the faith. We are to pass from being fed the milk to get into the meat. We are called to grow up into maturity in our faith and our walk with Christ. You see, in growing in faith, we need to grow our mind. We need to grow our thinking. We need to grow our knowledge, which leads us now into verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. To present our bodies as living sacrifices, it entails not being conformed to this world. Now, in my day as a teenager, and that's quite a few years ago, as it will be for many of you here, the greatest threat to my Christian faith was my desire to conform to the attitudes and the thinking of my peers. You see, not all my peers were Christians. Not all were believers. And this is the very same today. For our teenagers and our younger people, I think it's even harder today, especially for people aligned to biblical Christianity. The single greatest social pressure a teenager faces is conformity. Teenagers and everyone do not want to be seen as foolish. And yet that is what a Christian is called today, a fool. We are fools for Christ because of the things that we hold dear. The world today considers foolish and they consider it to be rubbish. The church today has a great problem. And the great problem is because Christians behave and think little differently to non-Christians. And Paul understands even back 2,000 years ago almost he understands the pull of the world. He understands the pull of our thinking to conform to the world's thinking. Of course, we've uh, seen in recent times, in the last uh, century or two, at least, we've seen a few groups who have endeavoured to cut themselves off from the world. In the USA, they have the Amish. And the Amish have no modern amenities. If the world goes in one direction, the Amish go in the other. Here is an example of non-conformity for non-conformity's sake. A few years ago, a young Christian came to me and said, I want to get married to so-and-so. Okay, tell me about her. She's very intelligent and she's got a good job and we've known each other for a long time. Okay, well, tell me about her church and her spiritual life. Oh, she's not a Christian. So you're a professing Christian, right? And you're engaged to this person and she's not a Christian. She's not a professing Christian. She's not a member of a church and you want to marry her. Is that right? Yes. What's wrong with this picture here? And it happens all the time. Do not be conformed to the world. 
However, in the kingdom of God, it's not so much about avoidance. It, it is about obedience to God's law, living lives in spiritual obedience. With Paul, he's exhorting us not to be conformed to this world and he reminds us that this world is not our destiny. The world today asserts there is no God. There is no life after death. Life is finite and the grave is the end. Therefore, live your life to the full. Grab every, everything you can grab hold of. That's what the world says today to people. However, as Christians, we are to live in the world, but not of it. You see, we have eternity written on our hearts. We have eternity on our hearts through our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, just as we're told not to be conformed to this world, we're also told to be transformed. And the Greek word that's used here is metamorphosis. In science, we see this in the transformation that occurs. The obvious one is when a caterpillar spins a cocoon around itself and later it's transformed into a butterfly. And this word indicates for a radical change of form. So the goal of the Christian isn't just non-conformity, but rather it's transformation. If we are to live as Christians, we don't live to the drumbeat of the world, but rather to the calling of God. And we do this with a change in our lives. Our lives are to be transformed by the power of God through his word. Now we all know this, the story of Martin Luther, but Martin Luther, when he stood before the diet of worms, he said, my conscience is captive to the word of God. And, that what, and that's what the apostle here is. He wants us as Christians to contemplate he wants Christians whose consciences, their minds, their inner person to be captive to the word of God because the Christian life flows from a renewed inner man. You see, transformation comes about by the renewing of our minds. We all need a new mind. And the beginning of the Christian faith is grounded in repentance. And repentance in the Greek means the change of mind. And prior to our initial repentance, we thought like the world thought. We accepted what the world accepted. We thought like our neighbours thought, who bury their sin and don't think much about it. Maybe we do the same. But then the Holy Spirit comes and it prompts us when we, when we sin and we, be, we come under conviction. We're awakened to our sin and we're awakened to our need for a saviour. And at the cross, our minds and lives were changed. And while a changed mind is a necessary condition, it's not the only thing that we need. You could become the best theological student ever. You could know God's word better than everyone. And I wouldn't be unhappy with that. However, what's required is for that knowledge that comes from a changed mind to infiltrate the human heart. No one is ever transformed without a changed heart. And the avenue to our heart is our mind. 
Our heart isn't that organ that pumps blood around the body. The heart that scripture is talking about is our inner being, our inner man, our inner person. It's who we really are as a person. When we get to think as Christians, we get a new mind. From that new mind, our heart is changed. That is how we become a people that is transformed. Now the second half of verse 2 says, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. One of the primary questions that Christians often ask is, what is God's will for my life? What is God's will for my life? If you ask me what is God's will for my life, are you asking if you should be a doctor or a baker or a candlestick maker? Or whether you should marry Mary Jane or Elizabeth Jean or Matthew James? I'm not dealing with this topic here specifically, but in 1 Thessalonians 4.3 it says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. You see, he wants us to become a holy people, a people set apart for him. doesn't matter who you marry or what your job is or where you live. Paul knows that minds which have been transformed by the, new, the renewing work of the Holy Spirit in accordance with his word, with the word of God, we'll be able to discern what they ought to do. For if we are not growing in our sanctification, if we're not seeking God's will about, about such things, then this is worthless. You can't do the will of God if you don't know the will of God and you can't make discerning choices if you don't know the truth of God. So the renewed mind, according to God's word, is a mind that is able to be discerning in a world that needs discernment. God's will for any, every one of us is to grow in spiritual maturity, that our lives become more fully set apart and they become more consecrated by the Holy Spirit that our minds are changed and our heart is changed. Our inner being is changed. Now sin, friends, never makes things easier. It always complicates things. We live in a fallen world and that means to live as Christians in a fallen world is a complicated thing and you need discernment. And Paul says that a transformed mind that is captive to the word of God becomes a discerning mind. Do you want to live the Christian life? Well, you need a mind that is transformed by the word of God to be a discerning Christian and therefore you will be doing the will of God. And that's why, friends, it's important that we have our own Bible reading. That's why it's important that we have our own prayer times. And that's why it's also important to be together for on the Lord's Day for worship. And that's why it's important to attend Bible studies when we can so that our minds will be transformed by the Word of God. This will please our Lord God and then we'll know what he wants and what he wants us to do, which is that good and acceptable will 
of God. May we all take heart as we contemplate and meditate on these two verses this morning as we become a living sacrifice for our Lord God. Amen. Let us pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for these two verses held together, beginning now a, a series of how we should live. Lord, we thank you for the doctrine that's already been presented. We thank you for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we just pray that you'll help us to live as you would want us to live and help us to be transformed by the renewing of our mind that would change our whole being to be the people that you would have us be. And so, Lord, we pray that this might be the situation for every one of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. More messages of hope at essendonpresbyterianchurch.org.au or wherever you get your podcasts from.